Hello, everyone. I'm Greg Goins from the Reimagined Schools podcast, a proud member of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to right now. The opinions expressed are those of the individual host. Make sure you check out all the other great podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com and get ready because the learning begins in three, two, one. Welcome to the Infused Classroom Podcast, where each episode, Tanya Abrith and Holly Clark take you behind the scenes with leaders in education, give you insights into what's happening in classrooms around the globe, and showcase online platforms that are disrupting education. Hi, and welcome to the Infused Classroom Podcast. I am your co-host, Holly Clark from San Diego, and I'm Tanya Abrith from South Florida. And today, we are ecstatic. We've been waiting for this recording all day because we have a very special guest, Kyle Wagner. And he, right now, is in Hong Kong, though you can catch up with him in San Diego and cities all over the world. But Kyle, why don't you give our listeners a background about who you are and what you're up to, and we'll start talking. Sure. Uh, Thanks for the introduction, Holly and Tanya. Who I uh, know very well. Um, I'm over here in Hong Kong, and what I'm helping do is uh, helping schools, forward-thinking schools, to uh, grow and develop 21st century learners um, through innovative strategies and teaming structures. Uh, focus mainly on project-based learning, which is kind of my background and expertise. Uh, the current project I was working on is starting a middle school, Montessori Middle School, which is a bit of an unknown for a lot of people since usually they deal with three to five-year-olds. So I deal with the uh, the age group that some people tend to avoid, but I quite like. We know that you got your start at High Tech High, so we'd love a little bit about your journey into this whole kind of transformation because you're one of the leaders in this field. So give us some background on on your journey. Yeah, sure. So I, I got my start at High Tech High, which some people are familiar with, with the uh, documentary Most Likely to Succeed. Uh, a lot of people have probably seen that video of that engineering project where they go through history and they have the wheel that's turning and and going through the different decades and people watch that and are just blown away um not all projects look like that by the way that's one of the uh, showcase projects um i just want to clarify that before people think that the uh, only way they could do project-based learning is if they uh, create an engineering wheel that goes through history um and I got, I got my start at High Tech High about uh, seven or eight years ago. I was there for four years um, and felt like everybody at High Tech High was really on fire for like changing and disrupting education. Um, and I remember talking to one of my colleagues at one point. And I said, you know, I think we're kind of like these seeds that are being planted that, that need to be dispersed um, because it felt like we had a lot of freedom to innovate um, and do things there that we felt like a lot of schools weren't doing, uh, mainly with centering uh, work around projects and not necessarily dictating everything according to content and standards and tests. And so from there, I um, got uh, my feet wet a little bit in uh, traveling abroad, um, did a couple stints in China, and actually I left the United States to find my American dream over in Asia, which is kind of a an interesting place to find your American dream. So um, I've been over in China and Hong Kong and doing a little bit to disrupt uh, education, but in a nice, gentle, transformative way. So I'm kind of familiar with your journey a little bit and as we've known each other for a couple of years. And I, I know you wrote a book, which I've read, 
And uh, you talk a little bit about transforming schools. Actually, you talk quite a bit about transforming schools in your experience in China. Uh, what Could you share a little light about that journey and the school that you worked on when you were in Beijing? Uh, yeah, I was over in Beijing and I was already over here in China at the time. Um, I was a little bit, to be honest, kind of just frustrated in general with the way schooling looked. And it wasn't just really in Asia in general. It was kind of across the board. And it was moving more kind of towards the standardization. And even though there was innovative things happening, the actual culture of schools wasn't centered around innovation like I knew it was at High Tech High. And so I was just, you know, going to pack my stuff and start uh, a program myself as an after school program um, that was really just didn't have necessarily the limits or confines that traditional schools might have. And fortuitously, I got a phone call from an old mentor over at High Tech High and said, you know, everything you're, you're looking to do, there's a school that wants to do exactly that. They want to eliminate schedules. They want to eliminate the uh, traditional reporting system. They want to integrate all learning around projects. And they, they say that, that if you take this position, you have the freedom to do exactly what you would want to do. And we met. And we shared each other's visions, and it aligned well. And so the program was called Futures Academy. And Futures Academy was a school within a school, for lack of a better phrase. Um, and the idea was to start this um, model for education that could somehow be a little bit of the uh, the model for what the, the bigger school is trying to go for, but couldn't do it all at once. So whereas the bigger school would go towards project-based learning because they could you know change a couple units up and make them project-focused, uh, we could make everything centered around those projects and we could make our whole reporting system centered around 21st century skills and we could um, make everything collaborative and we didn't have to have a schedule that we were confined to. So that's the program I was fortunate enough to help found with a couple of other uh, really innovative and forward thinking uh, visionary educators. And it still exists today. You can go over to the international school and see it. So I, I, I did that for three years. It's yeah. which it's which school? The International School of which of Beijing? Of Beijing, yeah. Have you heard? Yeah. When you were saying you were in Beijing and you were describing it, I'm like thinking to myself, which one was it? And then in my head, I was like, it had to be International School of Beijing. Well, and it was Kyle who started it, which is so cool. So now you make three, the whole, the big picture comes together. Uh, Kyle, can you tell me a little bit about some of the challenges you'd say like when you were starting the school like I think a lot of people dream of of project-based learning and the idea of even starting a school or even a school within a school model and and so what were some of the things that you faced when you were sort of in that process yeah so I I mean I think the challenge is to be fair to anyone who's trying to start this um, and it, it's not to deter anyone from doing it, but I think the challenge is uh, at first really far outnumbered a lot of the initial you know successes that we experienced. And I'd say the biggest challenge was getting everyone on board. To be honest, with this concept, um, I think people have a they have a notion of what it looks like, and until they see it themselves, it's hard for them to become believers. So our biggest challenge a was parents initially because parents in this Asian climate, you know, see education as being something that's like, uh, okay, my kids got to do the best on these standardized tests. They got to get in these Ivy League schools. And the only way to do that is this really rigorous test focused standardized education. And so it was kind of shifting that model for parents and parents mindsets was tough. That was a challenge. 
Um, and also that with that same token, our school, whereas we had a great, I think, external um, perception, everyone wanted to come and see what this you know school was doing that was trying to change the uh, boundaries of what education looked like. Internally, it was another very like nebulous. Well, what is going on over there? Like I heard they don't really do any work, or you know, <laughs> there's no academics or learning that's taking place over there. And I think the best way to alleviate all of those challenges is just to showcase and exhibit like constantly and invite people in and invite criticism, really, quite frankly, that that one who's the, the, the biggest critic and I won't give names, but the biggest critic of our program, the funniest thing happened. I go back to Futures Academy and I'm with this film crew and we're filming an educational documentary and I go, what's that person doing here? They're like, oh, you didn't hear? They're actually a teacher now in the program. I'm like. What? They were literally like they they were the biggest critic and the biggest voice against the program and said it was it's not going to work and now they're teaching in the program. So, I think that's a testament to just, you know, just cuz you hear a little bit of criticism at first, you know, stick to your guns, be unapologetic about what you're doing and people will will turn around. Well, I just want to say you said something about China and that's a little bit um, different there. And uh, I'm a big fan and I always say his name wrong of Young Zhao. And I think he has a little bit to do with International School of Beijing, if I'm not wrong. But he wrote a, a book called um, Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Dragon? Have you read mm. it about the I difference have... between the Chinese and American? I'm very familiar with Dr. Young Zhao. I've not read the book, but yeah, I know he has a lot of publications. So he like his premise in the book is that while we look to China and go, oh, those kids are are doing really well, that American school systems would be smart not to emulate that testing culture. And um, and I know that what I saw when I was over in China is that there's still this people really think that that's the way to teach. So. I know that Beijing, along with the Western um, Academy of Beijing and International School of Beijing, are just doing some really cool things, though, and they're able to work around that system. And, and I just I love hearing about the people who can do what you're doing and work around the system. Yeah. I, I mean, and just to clarify, this work is is with international schools mainly. And so the international schools are expatriates that are over there. And whereas they're they're Asian, there are a lot, a lot of times Asian-Americans. Um, and so they're over there just, you know, for two, three years. They have every intent to return back to the States or go to college in the States. So and I think Dr. Young Jiao, is, it's, I'm glad you mentioned him because he is absolutely monumental and pivotal in really stimulating this change because he speaks a he speaks chinese and b he speaks the kind of language that parents you know understand in terms of this fear um of you know getting away from testing uh and he is he has been absolutely pivotal he actually gave a, a talk to our parents um about how necessary and pertinent this type of education is and how this actually is the direction that lots of schooling is going, but just don't know exactly how to do that. And so, um, so he was definitely pivotal. I'm like, um, I'm a soldier of his. Like, if he were, if I could be a disciple, <laughs> if I just be by him, I would. I'm just a huge fan. Anyway, Tanya, you had a question. Well, I did. I want to. I want to speak to some teachers or school leaders a little bit. And I think very often, uh, and I'm sure Kyle, you've seen this. Uh, I know that I've actually had you come in and work with a school that I had worked with in the past. And, um, and you speak so eloquently about what project-based 
learning or problem-based learning, as we were talking about earlier, is and is not. And I would love for you to share a little bit of that wisdom, because I think very often people think that they're doing project-based learning, but sometimes it's, you know, it's a good attempt, but it's not really what it is. And so could you share a little bit about that? I mean, I think it's important that you mention problem and project-based learning. And sometimes the uh, no two, well, which one is it, problem or project-based? And actually, I think by using the term problem-based learning, it actually gets people more directed towards what project-based learning is. Um, because sometimes to doing a project for a project's sake, you're not solving a problem. You're just doing a project. Like we all, I don't know if you did, but we built like medieval castles. And I remember having so yeah. much fun building a medieval castle. Like, and I remember trying to get like the, the hot coals or whatever to drop, you know, when someone entered into this castle, you know, and that, that was a, <laughs> that was a problem, I guess I faced in building my castle, but it's not like the castle was solving a big problem. I mean, the castle ended up probably in a dumpster somewhere. So, I mean, whereas I remember it, it didn't necessarily like have an actual lasting impact or do something, you know, beneficial and not all projects do. Um, however, project-based learning is you're more learning through that project itself. And you're really, when you're learning through that project, you oftentimes are solving some kind of problem. So for example, you know, one of the projects that we led out in the International School of Beijing centered around our local waterway and how do we make a positive impact? And, you know, it's a project because the, the students are doing something. We don't know exactly what the students are going to produce and allows a lot of variance and deviation away from, okay, everybody, we are going to create one set product um, for to help, help improve this waterway. And so really a difference between project-based and project kind of oriented or kind of just doing projects for project's sake is that you get a lot of difference in what kids produce. There, it's centered around a larger, deeper inquiry. So we all know inquiry-based learning is really just good practice and good pedagogy. And project-based learning is no different. It's centering around a large question. The difference I see in inquiry-based learning sometimes in project-based learning is inquiries can be large and ethereal and, and kind of like abstract. And students can produce something that's not necessarily like making it a big impact, but is is answering that big question in some kind of essay form. I think projects are more you know tactile, hands on, and that the, the students are actually doing something um, impactful that is concrete that you can see. So I don't know if that helps answer that question. I feel like inquiry too um, allows the kids to do an inquiry around their passion, and it doesn't have to be fueled by standards or something that's in the classroom. This what's in the classroom can be in the art of teaching can be molded around whatever that passion is, and I and I like seeing that happen in classrooms. Yeah, I I, I think that's a good point too, Ollie. And it, it depends on what I always say for school leaders. It depends on what you're trying to do. If you really do have a set of standards and curriculum that you have to cover and you are kind of confined by subjects, you know, you don't necessarily have to go for the home run with project-based learning right away. And that then, that then is a way for those kind of school leaders to infuse project-based learning where there's a lot of opportunity for inquiry, but it's still housed in, you know, some kind of uh, curriculum. Um, And then there's the whole, you know, like for example, the Montessori curriculum, you know, it is very free in terms of where kids can go and what projects they can take on. So I really say with the school leaders, it's like centered around inquiry. Um, the best is if you can center around questions, big questions that students are interested in themselves. And if not, then find a way at access point because every project has access points where students can get involved with their own inquiries. Because if it's a big enough 
kind of a big enough inquiry ask, like what has to do with identity, kids are questioning into their own identity. Well, there's so many ways they can go in that direction. So with High Tech High and the movie that you alluded to earlier, what I heard some of the teachers say is that we're not going to reach all the standards and that's okay. And how do you help leaders kind of understand that maybe we might have to give up a few standards in order to get kids doing stuff that they're interested, answering bigger questions and all of that. Like, what is your advice on that? Well, generally my advice on that is like, okay, let's, let's pick out one unit or one particular theme that you can redo and you can really make project based. Like, cause, cause most teachers will have, I don't know if they're doing inquiry based, they might have like five, five big units throughout the year. Um, and it's like, well, let's, let's look at one of those things we could redo. And, and, you know, I'll give you a story of a school that I worked with. Um, we, we targeted a 10th grade team cause that 10th grade team was quite courageous and they were really the forward thinkers and they wanted to kind of be this model of how to redo things. So they weren't doing away with the whole curriculum, but they said, you know what, we're going to forget a little bit about all these magnitude of standards, uh, multitude of standards we have to cover. And we're going to make just, you know, a good project-based experience. So it had to center around the community. And I think it mainly centered around how do we use drama um, to really help tell and unfold a community story that's important to us. And the kids all wrote stories um, that, that happened in their community that tried to highlight big issues um, and things that were happening within their community. And so after they did that, they brought in some, some elderly people who used to work in theater and they were the kind of the experts on hand that were helping the kids. They had like voice coaches, lighting coaches, and they took a, a old space in their school and they transformed it into a theater. Um, and they watching watching these kids work with these these LR people. They divided up all the kids had different roles. Some were on sound, some were on lighting, um, some were on music, some were on the actual you know the director role, the producer role. So, I mean, this is something that really exists in the real world, right? I mean, it's a great project. And they invited in the community. And the, com- the story that they told was quite a sobering story. Um, I mean, literally, they told about the, the effects of alcohol on the community and abuse. And they wanted to highlight this, uh, this story of abuse and how there's redemption in that and I mean, the, the audience was almost moved to tears and it was all basically the community that was around them. It was in this inner city that was like one of the most violent areas in San Diego, East San Diego. And so that particular example I want to share with you because that was absolutely transformative. And my only role in, in that was to kind of help them find find a project that was meaningful to everybody and find a, a question more um, for which is meaningful to everybody and watching the way in which that transformed. And by doing that, the school and every grade level is like, we want to do something like that. How do we do something like that? So when you ask that question about schools and, you know, for those school leaders who are scared about like, what do we do with our whole curriculum? Keep the curriculum, you know, highlight or pick one particular area in which you can have a little bit more liberty and start with a, a team that's that's really wanting to, to do this work and jump on board. And then other people will will see that that work and it will be very transformative. Where do you even begin? I feel like for so many, it feels very overwhelming, the idea of shifting your curriculum so that it's much more student-centered and, and much more problem-based. And so I know you said pick one unit, but let's say I'm a teacher and, and I want to get started. 
where do I even begin? Like what processes can I even start to imagine what, what, you know, as I'm planning? That's, that's a good question. How do I start? And it depends, you know, some teachers, teachers start at different points. Um, I would say that it is good to start with some kind of training, um, in project-based learning. And, you know, there's some good books out there. There's a book called like hacking project-based learning, which is good. Um, high tech high puts out a lot of good examples of projects and project work. The Buck Institute, which is now called PBL works is a great starting point as well. Um, you know, I put out some resources. Your book? <laughs> yeah, well, um, I, I think I did write that book to say, look, where do I begin? So Power of Simple is is a, a good place to at least kind of like explore what that could look like. Um, but yeah, I'd say to, to, to reach out because I, I was at a project-based learning school and I did not have a mentor initially. And I thought, you know what? This is going to be transformative. I'm at High Tech High. I can start like I'm in a wall to wall project based learning school. This is can't be too hard. And it took me like three years, to be honest, where I put out a project that I was like, mm, I'm really proud of that. I want to share that with other people. So um, I think you got to reach out to mentors like what we're doing right now in terms of start like you two are both, you know, leaders in this education and innovation field. And we're having this conversation and we're getting, you know, rejuvenated. So like start, start on, start on Twitter, you know, start and find people who think similar to you and who are doing these things. Um, Like I even say for people want to start STEM, you know, just hashtag STEM in Twitter and you will find hundreds of ideas to get started. So I think really hashtag deeper learning from high tech high. Yeah. Yeah. If you, hash, if you hashtag deeper learning and deeper learning conference is a great place to start too. So conferences, yeah. 1300 people. Yeah. Wow. It's, it's, it's incredible. Yeah. And that conference is, is amazing. And it's very much like yeah. has this MIT feel to it. I, I mean, it's just very much like grassroots and it's, and, and you find your tribe, right? That's uh, you might yeah. probably attest to that. Find your tribe. Like don't go at this alone. If you really want to make that change, start like putting yourself out there and just asking questions and you will you will find those people who are able to help move you forward. And visit schools. And for our um, audience who doesn't know Deeper Learning, it's a conference that's here in San Diego. It takes place in March or early April, actually. This year it had 1,300 people. And um, it's a great place to take a team, get to go into High Tech High, the campus of High Tech High, and see what's happening and just meet your tribe. By They have like a band and all these like dinners that you can go to. So it's a really good thing to get involved with. Yeah. Definitely. You're now in Hong Kong and you've been working in Montessori school. And you mentioned that, you know, very often uh, people think of Montessori for like three and four year olds. Uh, What are you doing with Montessori and what age group are you working with? Like, what does that look like for for older students? For anyone who's, you know, not uh, been in Montessori or is new to Montessori, probably has the same perceptions I did. Um, I, I always thought is, Hey, this is a great kind of like hippie movement, you know, and the kids, it's very free and the kids just choose what they want to do and it's run out of someone's like living room. So it's been a big like learning experience for me. Um, but for, for middle school or adolescents, there's not really a program and, you know, just to, to give the basis of Montessori, the core principles, it's the whole idea of follow the child and watch what the child is naturally interested in and observe. And it's a lot about observation. 
And then, like even Holly mentioned about inquiry, it's like, well, then what questions does that child have and how can we really fuel that, that child's interest? And they have actually a really, really well-documented curriculum, which I didn't know. I thought it was just about follow the child and their interest. But they do have all these key lessons that are delivered um, all the way through from early years, all the way through elementary. So there is a really, really nice cohesive curriculum. Um, and they don't really have that necessary for middle school or adolescence. She didn't talk a lot about adolescence. But what she did say is a couple of principles. She said that adolescents are different. It's another sensitive period, which you really, really have this opportunity to open up this, this gateway um, of their eyes to the world. And they should be taken away from their families in a boarding school type of experience um, because this is the, type, the period where they're really transitioning into adulthood. And not only a boarding school type experience, the best place to do that is out in nature, in open areas. So like the idea of a farm, everything would center around a farm. Because if you think about a farm, and I didn't grow up on a farm, um, but I've, you know, I've, seen, I've seen farms. I mean, you're waking up at what, 6? 6.30 a.m., the uh, rooster's crowing, and you have all these jobs to attend to right away. And basically, if you're not feeding the animals, if you're not tending to the crops, the crops die, you know, the animals get sick, and you see firsthand running a farm, like the way the world works. Um, and so that was her kind of notion, is like all the curriculum should be centered around this farm. I mean, you think about the biology, the environmental science, the businesses. The businesses run out of the farm, too. So basically like the egg production business, um, you know, they raise pigs. I visited one of these Montessori adolescence programs and they'd raise pigs all the way for like two years and then they'd sell that to the local market. So, I mean, this is, this was really eye opening for me. So, so an adolescent program for Montessori is kind of centered around the farm, take them away um, where they have mentors who are not necessarily just teachers, but cause you know, cause kids are yearning for that adult connection. Um, and mentors slash teachers are the ones who pretty much live on this farm too um, and really help develop kids physically, socially, emotionally. Tanya, is it um, a good time to send Yael away to the farm? It might be. <laughs> it might be. I, I, I think sometimes I'm living with some farm animals. I have a almost middle schooler. Kyle, you will flip out when you see my daughter. It's going to blow your mind how big she is. I'll send you a picture. And I, I think that would be great. I mean, it would teach her responsibility. It would put her uh, in a place where she's a little more grateful. It would take her away from some of the over-technology that she's exposed to. I don't think that, um, that, that she That's was true. so far off. No, it's a great idea. And the age <laughs> is really kind of perfect. Um I'd like to see them without technology. I think that's a really, like, you know, like you wouldn't think I would say that, but I would love to see middle schoolers not have to deal with social media right now. Yeah. There's so much pressure. And here's an absolute trip. Like the the most technologically inclined people, i.e. Steve Jobs, you know, um, the late Steve Jobs, like i.e. Bill Gates, these other people. A lot of them will send their kids to Montessori schools, which make no apologies to say we are actually mostly a tech-free school. So you're like, what? What gives? And and the mm-hmm. amount of the amount of creativity, and this is what blew my mind. You're like, what? But like, what about their ideas? And how are they putting these ideas and getting them out there? But like, what the, the amount of creativity you see coming out of these? The Google founders are Montessori kids, by the way. Amazon. The Montessori mafia. Yeah. yeah. It's so also is Steve Jobs and Kanye West. <laughs> oh god true. stop 
I know. I know. You just ruined it. I know. Unfortunately, unfortunately, Kanye West like ruined our vision of what Montessori kids are and and can well, be. He's super creative. We'll give him that. He is creative. Yeah. Yeah, he is and creative. it's it's you really you really do like know this. And I was just reading this book called The Culture Code. I don't know if you've ever read this. It's an yeah, fan. yeah fantastic read but like it turns out like at the end the epilogue he's writing about like well i send my kids to a montessori school and you're like what like all these like creative it seems like these creative geniuses are coming out of this this montessori program so i i to be honest am so fortunate i know everyone wants to talk about high tech high which is great um but i i love like the experience i've got at this montessori school i've learned so much Ooh, you can fuse them you can infuse them Infuse like the infuse classroom. (laughs) (laughs) It's the podcast, so you got to infuse them. Um, Is there anything that is happening in the world scene that, like, if you if you could tell someone go visit three schools in the world? Mm. um, And I know you haven't been to every school, but what three schools would you say you got to check these out? All right. So and remember, not everyone's been to High Tech High. Okay. Well, yeah, that's good. I mean, since I'm over in Asia, a couple I'm going to give you are over here in Asia. And this is actually the, the, this, this documentary that's being filmed called The Death of Recess. They came out and said, what's happening over in Asia? And I'm like, oh, you got to see these schools. So the first school I'll mention, since we're on that, that thread of Montessori, is this Abbas Orchard School. Um, and that is in the Philippines, actually. And... Um, and when I visited this school, it was like unlike anything I've ever seen. The guy on the way over, the director, calls up and says, I need a couple kids. I need like two kids who are going to lead this tour around the campus um, and show, you know, Kyle who's coming in the farm and how we learn here. And like this is like within 10 minutes of getting there. I get there and it looks like a farmhouse. Basically, it does not look like a school um, it you know feels like I'm going out to a, just a farm, and these kids greet me. They said, "Oh, you got to put on these boots. It's just been raining." And I'm trekking through the mud, and they they start showing me all the farm animals. And literally, literally, I'm not kidding you. One of the pigs dies on the spot, and this pig they've been raising for like a year. And so I'm expecting, like I can imagine, like my pet dog dying on the spot there. Like I would be in shambles. And they dealt with it like like just pros. The older classmen said, okay, well, this happened. You know, that this particular pig was going to be a large source of our revenue. And he's died. Uh, what do you think we should do about it? And the lower classmen, you know, the younger kids who they're mentoring said, you know, we it might have diseases and we want to get, don't want to infect the other pigs. And they just dealt with it like it was just a, a part of the daily, daily routine. And so that, that to me was like incredible. So like, okay, I've got to send people over here to see this. Um, so that's a really, really cool school to see. Um, another school. Say the name one more time. It's called Abbas Orchard. Um, A-B-B-A um, apostrophe S Orchard in the Philippines. You could look it up. I think there's a couple okay. network of Abbas Orchard schools. Um, there's one school called Moonshot Academy. Um, and I love the name basically. And they ha- you go into Moonshot Academy and they have this like submarine looking structure. And this is like one of their learning zones. And you're like being transported into the future. Um, and there, they basically, their impetus for learning is they had uh, seniors who were coming out of high school. were like, you know what? We want something different for school. We want to create something different. And this, it's called the number one Peking University, which is quite popular there, said, okay, well, what, what would that look like? 
And so this senior who's 17, instead of going into college, decided to like rehash and, you know, like shake up this education system a little bit in China and started this program called Moonshot Academy. They got like people who are like these MIT grads who are um, who are over there in China at the time. Um, So in this particular program is kids can choose what kind of classes they take. They can actually devise the courses with the instructors themselves, they vote on which classes they want to take. So if some classes don't get enough votes, they don't run. Um, and so that was like the amount of student ownership that you see. They meet in a circle every morning. They have, it's like a boarding school, again, a boarding school type of experience. And I guess the theme I'm touching on is like this feels like communities. It's very small communities uh, centric. And so that's, that's another school to really, really uh, check out. That's very cool. Um, so I got Moonshot Academy. Let's see. Uh, we got a couple of schools covered in Asia. Um, I, th- I think, too, it would be worth seeing, although I haven't seen it. Um, but the Hershey Montessori School um, is in Ohio, and it's another farm school. So anyone who wanted to see kind of a, a Montessori school or Montessori program, especially for adolescents, that's a good one. Um, and so these ones are just, just quite dynamic and quite different. Um, they will definitely blow your mind of what school might look like. Um, and then I, there are a handful of others to check out. Um, and I think if, if you're not necessarily looking for something as revolutionary, but something that is still very innovative is, you know, a lot of international schools. I have obviously know the ones out in Asia that are doing this work. Um, there's a school BCIS in Beijing. Um, there's a school called the Harbor School here. It's another international school. And it runs similar to the way Moonshot Academy runs in terms of kids being able to choose their own classes and devise what their curriculum and content looks like. Um, a lot of schools, too, that you probably know are doing the, um, the new reporting system um, with a mastery transcript and trying to look how that might look. So, yeah, that's a handful. So I did want to ask you one question. I've been hearing a lot about this phenomenon, and it, to me, isn't really revolutionary but I want to give the teachers props for trying it. But I hear a lot about choice and voice and that like I did this project and my I had to teach my kids about the cell structure. So I let them respond in any way they wanted. They could write a song. They could do a Minecraft and what have you. And I feel like when I hear that, I'm really happy for those kids that they get that choice. But I don't know if that is super revolutionary just saying, hey, you're going to have choice in this in picking how you show me how you learned. What are your thoughts around that? Do you have any thoughts around that? Am I picking on it too much? No, I, I mean, I think when you touched on that, I, I'd be interested to hear what, so So is your is your issue with that is that, hey, you know, that's not super revolutionary. Is your issue with that, well, that's maybe not what we're actually going for. Um, I guess my issue might be, and I'm not sure, you're sort of being my therapist here. (laughs) My issue might be in this word personalization. So people talk a lot about personalized learning. And really what to me it is, is you're still doing the same stuff. Hmm. But at the end, you're letting the kids pick how they show you their learning, which is not bad. But I guess if I'm starting my own school, it's a little deeper than that. It's a little more than, hey, we're all going to learn about the cell at the same time in the same way. When you're going to respond and show me you're learning differently, I would like it where, you know what, I'm really into cooking. So I'm going to learn about the important parts of 
of that. And if I get to cells and I, and I'm going to have to learn a little bit, bit about cells, but I'm not going to go in as deep and my thing's cooking. And that's where my inquiry is. And I, I guess in my perfect world, that's what a school looks like. I find my passion. I learn those subjects through that passion. And, and I don't want to pick on personalized learning, but I think everyone's talking about it and I'm not sure it's super revolutionary. And I'm probably, I probably shouldn't be doing this in live for everyone to hear. Well, (laughs) it's so interesting that you're bringing this up because I literally just saw an article and I don't know if it was from the New York times. I can't remember, but it was how, um, Mark Zuckerberg had, um, done some work with Kansas city district. I don't know if you, if you saw that, but basically the kids like were protesting how much they hated his personalized learning model. And because all it basically was, was like a blended version of online courses that they were taking digitally where they weren't collaborating and they were working in silos. Hmm. I don't know. Did any of you read anything about it? it I saw it just today. No, I, I haven't seen that, but I, I is, is your, your point to that, that it doesn't necessarily disrupt education or the way we've always done things. Um, and it sounds like, yeah. It what disrupts Holly, the end. Yeah. It sounds yeah. like what Holly mentioned too. It's like, okay, we're going to learn about all this stuff. The only change we're going to make is now you have a choice of how you display what you've just learned, which is not, it's mm-hmm. just doing a project for project's sake. And it's not really tapping into mm-hmm. what really that kid is, is excited about. And I think also too, what Tanya is mentioning as well is is along those similar lines you know it's um it's this uh, this notion of you know personalization but yet it's still not connecting uh, and collaborating the way that we need to so um i i mean i would agree with you and say that voice and choice is not necessarily centered around okay here's your learning you have a choice in how you're going to present that learning to me um, I think it, it has to do with inquiry. And if you can tap into inquiry and th- questions that kids really care deeply about, mm-hmm. and I think the sustainable mm-hmm. development goals are a great starting point for that. Because if you need a starting point, because it's hard to really go in and as a teacher say, I'm going to disrupt everything and I'm going to actually have zero curriculum mm-hmm. and I'm just going to find out what my kids are interested in. Because that's almost overwhelming and kids almost will be overwhelmed in that kind of setting as well. So if you want a starting point, start with big, meaningful questions, uh, deep questions, maybe start with sustainable development goals, which is everyone centered on. You have a giant community that's focused on that already. And then, you know, students, of course, can make choice within that, which is what they're most interested in. And, you know, then they can be connected with this whole global community that is doing similar work. Um, and so then they're not necessarily working in silos. They can make an impact locally. They can connect to local NGOs. Like this has all the ingredients of what really could make personalization um, rather than just taking the curriculum that we already cover and saying, okay, now we're doing science and let's find a way to tell me what you learned about the cell in a way that's interesting to you. And listen, if it's a starter drug for someone to get into inquiry-based learning, I'm all about it. I don't want to say that it's not a good thing, but I just think personalization in that form is not the innovation I I hope to see in schools in the future is all. And um, if it gets people ready, I'm I'm behind you 100%. Well, I I actually just Googled what I was just talking about, and the article was in the New York Times, and it came out, uh, I think it was today. And it's basically Silicon Valley came to Kansas City schools. That started a rebellion. That's the name of the article. <laughs> and basically, the whole idea was that they they had this thing called summit learn uh, summit learning, 
And the kids hated it so much that they were quoted saying, please take my Chromebook back. I don't want to do this anymore. And they had sit-ins, like you got to read the article. And and essentially it was like this blended approach to teaching and learning where it was like online, like personalized learning. Oh, and it was, it was basically, yeah. mm-hmm. and it was basically mm-hmm. just like covering standards online. And the kids were like not collaborating. That is not the Chromebook infused classroom, I must say. That is the opposite of the Chromebook infused classroom. So I just had to put that out there. Sorry. I know, but this is the kind of stuff that gives like what we're trying to do a bad name because it's just basically, you know, taking standards, flipping them upside down, giving kids no, like literally no choice, no student voice, and just having them like drill in eight hours a day of taking, you know, test taking a bit like their test, increasing their test taking abilities. So very interesting. Well, I want to do a plug for you guys too, you know, in terms of the infused classroom, because like what you're mentioning is the, the, the Google, the infused classroom is not about the Chromebook or about using Google. You know, it's more about Google as a tool for like these larger things that we know are important. So when it comes to student voice, like, I'm just looking through, you know, some of your book here and it's sharing student work. I mean, like that concept of sharing student work is not necessary. Technology is not the only way, but technology obviously makes it a lot easier to share student work. Good pedagogy or good inquiry questions or good personalization is what then makes those students want to share that work. So like you can't like you can't the cart and the horse, you know, you got to know what's first, you know, the horse yeah. that's driving the cart yeah. is what you, the bigger things you want to see. And then the, the cart can be the technology to get them there. And you don't know this Kyle, but we're writing the Chromebook infused classroom almost done right now. And one of the foundational parts of it is that we're including the question formulation technique mm. um, by Dan Rothstein and Lou Santana. That's kind of the starter drug to having kids ask their own questions and read and instead of answering them all the time. Mm-hmm. Because one thing that I found as a teacher in seventh grade, I was like to my kids, we're going to do passion project and you're going to get 20% of your time to do whatever you want. And I thought the kids would be like putting me on their shoulders and being like, Miss Clark is the best. How did we get this teacher? And they didn't. They said to me, well, how do I get a grade? <laughs> I don't have a passion. What do you want me to do? I'll do cat videos. And I, and <laughs> I learned and I got a cold slap in the face that they had been schooled out of that kind of thing. Hmm. So then when I found the question formulation technique, which comes from a book called Make Just One Change, that one change of having hmm. kids ask their own question is this kind of gateway into having kids be able to do inquiry and it's like my friend trevor mckenzie would say it's sort of like in the in the uh, pool swimming pool analogy it's that first step and what i did Mm. is i went to inquiry and i went straight to the dive deep end and i'm like we're gonna go in we're doing inquiry and i didn't scaffolded it and um so it's that scaffolding. And so I just have these three words in this. I probably shouldn't share this, but I'm going to because anyone who knows me knows it. I can't stand the word voice and choice. I can't mm-hmm. stand those two words. And I can't stand mastery. I can mm-hmm. stand um, the other word. Um, uh, Personalization. Competency. I love competency. Um, I don't like personalization. It's true, but um, not as bad. Um, but I just feel like you're going to ask a fourth grader to be a master of fractions. Like mm-hmm. you can't, mm-hmm. but you can ask them to be competent in mm-hmm. fractions. Mm-hmm. And so I'm really liking that people are starting um, this inquiry and this problem-based learning around competencies. And it mm-hmm. doesn't rub me as wrong. Tanya's sitting back and knowing that I'll get going on a thing uh, because I can't <laughs> 
understand those well, words. Well, I, I want to step back a second because I have a bunch of high school seniors right now in my classroom uh, because my class, you can take it over a period of four years. So I, I have freshmen in the same class as my seniors and my seniors are 18 days away from graduating. And mm. honestly, like you could not get more students checked out by the time they're out. And I get it because like, uh, you know, anytime you're kind of he- heading towards summer or you're going to leave something like you become, you begin to become more and more checked out. But like, I see it because I have kids who are freshmen in my class and I have kids who are seniors and they just want to be like, tell me what I need to do to be done. Hmm. They are like, so they literally have had the love of learning schooled out of them by the time they're in 12th grade. And they have, they just play the system. There's no room for inquiry. There's no room for questioning. They just like, they just, they're just zombies like moving through this process right now. And like, that's what I want to be able to bring back the joy for them. Like I, I feel so bad for my kids because Kyle, they go seven periods a day all day long. They're in different classes. Each teacher is working in a siloed space Teachers don't collaborate, right? They just work on their own curriculums. Maybe they do some work within their departments, but it's not happening, you know, elsewhere. And so when, when you know, that's what I was so excited to have you on the show because I really want to see kids have meaningful, authentic experiences in their classes. And I want mm. teachers to feel inspired to, you know, think outside of the box and to understand that there's this other world where they can do authentic projects or solve authentic problems and that students can be part of that process. So I want to thank you so much for coming on the show today. You are one of my favorite guests. You know, I love you so much and I'm so excited about the work you're doing. And I can't wait to see you at some point again and give you a big hug. And I I, I love you. Like, thank you so much for coming on today. Um, can you tell the people listening uh, how they could get a hold of you, follow you? Like if they need to have someone come out and walk them through this process of problem-based learning on Montessori or just rethinking education, how can they get a hold of you? Tell us everything. Wait, wait, wait. Before you, you tell us everything, guys, if you're listening, I've had him come and work in my school. There's no one better than Kyle. And I mean that from the bottom of my heart. He's amazing. So go ahead. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, and all the love right back at you. Uh, so my uh, website, transformschool.com, um, it shows a little bit about the work I do and the work I'm doing with schools and um, how, how I'm really, how I feel that I'm helping schools kind of to do things that they know are important, but just kind of, you know, need the tools um, to get started with. Uh, uh, so that's transformschool.com. On Twitter, you can find me there. Um, it's KWAGSSD3, KWAGSSD3. I know Tanya will give me a hard time about that with her branding. Uh, that, that, was my, that was my Twitter handle a long time ago, and it's just stayed with me forever. Um, so that's, that's a way to get a hold of me as well. Or reach out to me at uh, email, uh, kylewagner um, at transformschool.com. Uh, tell me a little bit about what you're trying to do at your school, and we can have a chat and see, see how we might uh, work together. And thank you, Kyle. It's a pleasure. I can't wait till you come back to San Diego and we can have a coffee at Bird Rock again. And thank you for being our guest. Yeah, I'm going to take you up on that coffee and come out to Hong Kong and have a coffee here. 
Thank you for listening to the Infused Classroom podcast. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or anywhere you get podcasts. Keep up with the conversation by using the hashtag Infused Classroom on Twitter and Instagram. And make sure to check out InfusedClassroom.com. See you next time.